Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Live every day as if it were your last. Live every day as if it were your last. Now, that's a sort of cliched way of expressing something that Plato actually argued was the point of it all. Uh, When Plato tried to summarize the life of a philosopher, a lover of wisdom, how we ought to order our lives, for Plato, the answer to that question was, the philosopher spends his life meditating on death. That sounds kind of morbid. Live every day as if it's your last is much more inspirational. And if you think about that advice, live every day as if it were your last, it's not bad advice. I think about how you would, you know, live differently if you took that seriously. So imagine what you did yesterday. And if you made a list of everything that you accomplished yesterday, how many of those things would be on the list if you had known you were going to come to church today and die? Probably not that many. If we knew this is our last day, we might, you know, live it differently. So I started thinking about what I would do if this were my last day, how I would live it. And uh, it's funny, the ideas that come to you. Like it turns out, it it ends up being one of those bucket list kind of things. You start thinking about all the stuff you haven't done. You're like, if I'm going to die in 24 hours, do I have time to get to France at all? Like, that's one of my sort of ambitions. There's a giant map of France on the wall, and I'm just waiting for the moment. And if I knew I was going to die in 24 hours, I'd probably want to hustle over there, eat a baguette, sit on the the banks of the Sand River, and then, you know, slip beneath the waters. You may have different dreams. You know, you may want to go up in a hot air balloon or, or, you know, bungee jump or jump out of an airplane, you know, something crazy like that. Uh, Maybe you want to go find a a place where you can observe your last sunset and just soak it up and experience it like you never have before. But for most of us, if if we were asked the question, how would you live your last day? If you were going to live every day as if it were your last, how would that look? And for most of us, the answer would be we would pack it full of experiences, we would start thinking about experiences that we've denied ourselves or things we've enjoyed and would like to do again, that sort of thing. And the way you would live your last day is to live it full of rich, beautiful experiences. But not everybody would do that. The interesting thing about this advice is that everybody could follow it and it might look very different. Some of us would pack our last day full of experiences because we're under the impression that our last day is our last day, that physical death is the end, and after that is nothing. And so this is your last opportunity to do whatever it is you want to do before oblivion awaits. But some of us, we Christians, don't believe that about death. If death is not the end of experience, then to live every day as if it's your last, as a Christian, might look different. Not about chasing after experiences, but maybe that would be a day spent in repentance, in reflection, in preparation for the life to come. What you think death is changes 
how you prepare for it and how you might answer that question. How you would live your life if death was not the end? That's the question that Paul is answering when he talks about the doctrine of sanctification. As we look at our passage this morning, you begin to see the way that Paul speaks about death and, and uses the reality of death and life to illustrate for us how we ought to live before the face of God. He says in verse five, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There are a couple of things to observe in that passage. The first is the structure of it, which if you look at the way the text is presented in your order of worship, I've tried to illustrate for you a little bit of the grammatical structure, what Paul is doing. You could organize this passage into three points. And the three points correspond to three words, which uh, is one word repeated three times. The word is for, for, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And third, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So three of those four statements, therefores. But there's also another structure, a kind of subpoint in each case. The first two of those three four statements are followed by a we know. If you look in verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Then if you skip down to verse 9, you get a second one. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And then you skip to the third, and you don't have one. In the third, you get something else. And that interruption of the pattern is arresting. It kind of draws attention to itself. We go from four to we know, four to we know, four to consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, what we know becomes the basis for how we think about or regard ourselves. What we know becomes the basis for our self-conception. 
what we consider ourselves to be, who we consider ourselves to be. The knowledge that we have changes the way that we think about ourselves. It's as simple as that. So how should we think about ourselves? In order to answer the question, Paul introduces an analogy. Now, remember in chapter 5, he gives us the great analogy between Adam's work and Christ's work. If you want to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to, on some level, look at it as a, a reverse image of the work of Adam. If you understand what Adam did in his fall, you begin to understand how Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith. And now in chapter 6, Paul does it again. He gives us another analogy. This is a more subtle analogy, but it's an analogy nevertheless. The analogy is between the physical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the spiritual death and resurrection of his people. So a number of times... In the passage that we've just read, Paul has pointed to a certainty that comes from the example of Christ. If we have died with him, then we will certainly be raised with him. Our resurrection is as certain as his resurrection. Now, we know that sometimes when Paul makes that point, he's speaking physically. He doesn't mean just as Jesus was physically raised again, Uh, you will be spiritually raised again. He means you will be physically raised again, that you will die. But if you die in Christ, then your body will live again. Body and spirit will be reunited. And that bodily, physical resurrection is the hope of the gospel in the future when Christ comes again. But now he's showing us analogically that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a picture, is an illustration of how we should think of ourselves, how we should think of our own lives. That just as Jesus died and lived again, those of us who are in Christ, by virtue of that justification, we've died already and now live again. Already. This new life that we live spiritually is a kind of resurrected life. And that has to do with another idea that he introduces here in this passage. Uh, The death that we died with Christ was the death specifically of the old self. The old self he refers to it's, it's uh, in the Greek, it's the paleos anthropos who has died. Paleos, like, like paleo, not the eat like a caveman paleo, but the the really long time in the past paleo to mean old, the old anthropos, the old person, King James, the old man, using man there generically in a way that we don't really do anymore. Here, the old self, the old identity has died, has died on the cross. Like a once for all kind of death, that has happened to those of us who have died with Christ. And the meaning of it is this, that the specific benefit of the death is that because of that death, we are no longer under the dominion of sin. 
The old self was under the dominion of sin, but the old self is dead. The old self is crucified with Christ, and the new self is free to live under the dominion of God. Now, that idea of death and life, of the old self and the new self, is fundamental to the way Paul teaches sanctification. If you want to understand how we're meant to live our lives as Christians, you really need this concept of the old self and the new self, because he relies on it heavily. So take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. You turn your Bible to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. You may get there before I do. You go down to verse 22. Verse 22, Paul describes what you learned when you learned Christ. He says, the way you learned Christ was this, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So it's not just a reformation of morals that occurs as a result of the gospel. It's a transformation of self. The old self, the corrupted self has died. And now the new self is alive to God. You'll see this also if you look in Colossians chapter 3. If you turn to Colossians chapter 3, in fact, the whole chapter, chapter 3, is about putting on the new self. It's about walking in the spirit, what sanctification looks like. But we'll just look specifically at a couple of verses, verse 9 and 10. And here you'll see the way that Paul grounds really basic, like moral teaching in this change from the old self to the new self. In this case, it has to do with lying. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's an interesting argument against lying. I don't know how many of you, when you're trying to teach young people not to lie, uh, would use an argument like this. Most of us just say, don't lie because it's bad. People won't trust you if they know you're a liar, that sort of thing. Paul's going deeper than that, though. He's not talking about the benefits or deficits of, of the action of lying. He's talking about the inconsistency of that action with your identity, with yourself. That this is a behavior that belongs to the old self, and the old self is dead. And the new self is being renewed by the Spirit. That suggests much more of a break between the old and the new than we typically imagine, give credit to. There are two things here. There's a lot that we could say about this, but I just want to say two things about this sanctification as it relates to the old and the new self. Uh, The first thing is this, that our sanctification starts with um, a new self-conception. That you see Paul at the beginning of his teaching on sanctification, calling us to a new way of seeing ourselves. He calls us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. So there must be a power in that self-conception, 
a power that we shouldn't neglect or disregard. It matters how we consider ourselves. Secondly, I want to talk about the certainty of this new self-conception, the reality of it. It's not just consider yourself to be this, but consider yourself to be this because you are this, and that is certain. But why is it certain? The certainty, Paul grounds it in one fact. The certainty of, of the death of the old self and the life of the new self is grounded entirely by Paul in our union with Christ. It is only because of that analogy between what is true for Christ and what is true for us that we have any certainty that what is promised to us will indeed be true. So first, let's consider how sanctification starts with a new self-conception. I don't think this is an obvious conclusion to draw from experience. I'm not sure how many of us, without the, the benefit of Scripture, would believe that what Paul is saying is actually true. When I see that despite my justification, my experience of salvation, I continue to sin, When I look at my life and I recognize that despite what I say about following Jesus, despite my many acts of repentance, I continue to sin and I do so constantly in a way that makes it impossible for me ever to want to hold myself up as an example and say, just be like me and everything will be fine. I don't think I would ever conclude from that reality, oh, My old self must be dead. My old self must be dead. I must no longer be under the dominion of sin. Because to be honest with you, judging by my own experience, I would say I must surely still be under the dominion of sin. And there is no way in the world that my old self could possibly be dead. Because I wrestle with him every day. And I feel as if oftentimes he wins. Based on experience alone, I don't think we would ever draw these conclusions, which is why I would argue Paul begins here. Because he knows that if you just base your understanding of sanctification on the lived reality of the Christian life, this is something you will not recognize, you will not see. Paul is saying, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God, even though you still struggle with sin. As he continues, he will acknowledge that struggle. He will speak candidly about his own struggle against sin. Paul is the last person in the world who's going to say to you, well, the moment that Christ enters your life, those days of sinning are done. You'll never need to worry about that. That is a thing of the past. He is going to acknowledge very honestly the fact that we continue to struggle with sin. That has its place. But Paul's saying, don't don't get its place wrong. Like, don't put that first. There's something you need to put before that to understand what it truly means that we still struggle with sin by starting with this analogy, by comparing our spiritual death and life to Christ's physical 
death, and life. Paul can acknowledge the struggle of sin later, but put it in a context that reveals to us what it truly means. He shows us that despite our imperfect faithfulness, despite our imperfect faithfulness, we are truly freed from the dominion of sin. Despite appearances, we are in fact dead to sin. With certainty. It seems paradoxical. It's strange to say I'm dead to this thing that I continue to struggle with. It's all behind me. It's nailed to the cross when it seems as if it keeps crawling down again. And yet Paul speaks of this reality of death and life, of new self and old self with a certainty, with an absolute certainty as if a line has been drawn and has never been crossed. You will never from this day forward live under the dominion of sin. You have been freed from it. And the certainty of that freedom, that's the second point. It comes entirely and only from our union with Christ. He points us to that analogy of Christ's death and Christ's life. As surely as he died once for all, he died to sin. We similarly have died to sin. If we are in union with Christ, if we are united to Christ, then we will receive all that he promises, benefit from all that he does, and follow the trajectory that he set before us. All of those things will be true and must be true for those who are in Christ. That union with Christ is so important that there is no security outside of it. There is no possibility of any of these things being true for us apart from our union with Christ. But because of that certainty, there is no danger at all within this union. What Paul is saying is, if you are in Christ, then the one conclusion you cannot draw from your continuing struggle with sin is that you will not ultimately be sanctified that you will not ultimately be glorified. The fact that you're not perfect, the, the fact that your faithfulness is filthy rags even now, the one conclusion you cannot draw from it is this means none of it will be true. Because it is true and is becoming true as our lives are shaped into the pattern of the life of Christ. And as surely as he rose again, and as surely as he lives for God, we too, who are like him in his death, are being made like him in his resurrection. We are being freed to live to God. So that's why he says here, consider yourself dead to sin. Consider yourself Alive to God. Consider it. Consider it. He's not saying consider yourself dead to sin. And even though you really aren't, believing it will make the struggle easier. 
You're going to struggle with sin because you're still under the dominion of sin. But you know what? Sometimes some positive thinking can really help you out when things are tough. So look, I know you're not free from sin, but consider yourself to be free from sin and it will be inspirational. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying at all. He's also not saying consider yourself dead to sin and you will become dead to it. Because the way that you see yourself has the power to shape your reality. And if you only conceive of yourself correctly, if you only shape your identity as it should be shaped, then it will be so. That's not what he's saying either. Paul doesn't believe that we possess the power to shape our destinies, to shape our identities in this way, that you are whatever you believe yourself to be. Not at all. So when he says, consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God, what he's saying is to bring your conception of self into line with a reality that your eyes cannot perceive, that your experience seems to undermine. He's calling you to consider yourself to be what God has said you are even though the slings and arrows of this life seem to argue against it. The assurance comes not from your own faithfulness, but from Christ's faithfulness. Remember, the new life is much more than just a call to obedience. The new life, the new love is an awakening to faithfulness. Here, what Paul is saying is, when you look at your pattern of faithfulness to God, when you look at how well you've been faithful to God, what you'll see is a lot of unfaithfulness. But don't be discouraged by that unfaithfulness to believe that the work that has begun in you will not be completed, because it will be, because the faithfulness that matters from beginning to end is the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you grasp that, then you can build an understanding of sanctification of the life of holiness on top of it. But that's where you start. That's the foundation that you build on. If you grasp this, you can also see why Plato didn't quite have it right. And Plato, th- Plato thought that the, the life of wisdom simply put, would be a life of meditation upon death. That a life spent meditating on death would lead to a life well spent. That if we lived every day as if it were our last, we would make better choices. We would be nobler. We would be wiser. We would be more faithful, more pleasing to God. That's not entirely wrong, but it's also not exactly right. In Calvin's Institutes, in book three, chapter three of book three, Calvin writes this. He says, Plato sometimes says that the life of the philosopher is to meditate on death. More truly, may we say, that the life of a Christian is constant study and exercise in mortifying the flesh until it is certainly slain and the spirit of God obtains dominion in us. Wherefore, he seems to me to have made most progress who has learned to be most dissatisfied with himself. 
He does not, however, remain in the miry clay without going forward, but rather hastens and sighs after God, that engrafted both into the death and the life of Christ, he may constantly meditate on repentance. As Christians, the death that we're called to meditate on day by day is not the one you think. The death that we're called to meditate on is not the physical death that is to come. It is to come. And you can profit by reminding yourself of that. But the death as Christians that we focus on is the death of the old self and the birth to life of the new. That's the mortification of the flesh that Calvin is talking about. Mortification, that sounds bad, right? Mortification is like a fancy Latinate way of saying deathification. Like the putting to death of something is, is the mortifying of something. The, the putting to death of the flesh sounds like a profound self-hatred. It's the kind of idea which wrongly understood would lead you to think, I know God wants me to, to whip myself. And by mortifying the flesh, I will come closer to spiritual truth. I'll be more devoted in that way. But the mortification of the flesh is a reflection on the death of the old self. The mortification of the flesh is a realization that the practices of sin in my life are a vestige of the old self who is dead. And I'm no longer under the dominion, under the power that once reigned over me, that imposed its will upon me. I've been freed from that. So that process of mortification is, is truly a kind of uh, vivification. That mortification corresponds to a bringing to life of the new self as we walk in obedience and faithfulness to Christ. We look back at our death to sin, and now we live a life that meditates on repentance. In other words, uh, to put it in Calvin's terms, it's not enough to get to the point that he describes, the, the, the point of most progress where we've learned to be most dissatisfied with ourselves. It's not enough to be dissatisfied with ourselves because we've not just been called to dissatisfaction in Christ. Dissatisfaction with ourselves specifically means dissatisfaction with the old self. And that leads to something else, which he describes as hastening and sighing after God. We have been engrafted into the death and the life of Jesus Christ. And if you want to understand the life that you've been called to, this new life of faithfulness, what it entails is not just like a morbid renunciation of the self, but a hastening and a sighing after God, a longing for God a longing for the life that we have in him. At the death of Christ, which he died once for all, he died forever to the dominion of sin. He ascended to the right hand of the father. He lives in the presence of the father where he makes intercession for us. And when we see that, we recognize a pattern that is true for ourselves as well. We too have died to the power of sin. We too live 
before the face of God, to long for him, to sigh after him, to serve him, to be faithful to him as he has been faithful to us. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.